Uh, we've got book club coming up next week. It'll be at Debbie's house and it's at 7 p.m. They're reading the book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And I've heard from a couple people who've already started it. it sounds like a really, really fascinating blend of both memoir and um, from a, a, a botanist, kind of a scientific perspective. We'd love to have you. Even if you've never been to a book club, it's not too late to jump in. So that's uh, all those information details, all of that stuff's on our website under the calendar. And then the last thing we want to put on your calendar is save the date coming up um, MEA weekend in October. I think it's the 23rd, but I can't remember if it's the 23rd or 24th. Anyways, we've got a sacred sites tour coming up. And these tours are conducted by Reverend Jim Baird Jacobs, who is um, bringing the native perspectives of some of the most sacred sites here in the Twin Cities. And it's an opportunity for us to listen and to learn. Uh, we'll be traveling around to, I think it's four of some sites around the confluence of the Minnesota and uh, Mississippi rivers um, and hear from the native uh, perspective what that means and uh, and how we can be part of um, uh, of healing and reconciliation so we'd love to have you for that go ahead and check out our website if you'd like to get signed up that's in October I think that's it Debbie did I miss anything all right great thanks everybody here's Matt I don't know why you asked Debbie, if you miss, I was right here. Like, I know what's going on, too. <laughs> no, I do not. That's all news to me right there. Hey, good evening, everybody. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you guys are with us. I love when we have these kind of intimate gatherings outside in the parking lot. Uh, so thank you for showing up. Thank you for saying yes to the invitation. Um, this is the part of our worship program where we pause to look at Scripture and see if we can find a way that our story can be edified by the stories in there. And and tonight, I'll just I'll name it out front that like it, it's going to be a little bit more theological pontificating, which is something we usually don't do because it ends up disconnecting us from boots on the ground, real life flesh and blood stuff. But we're starting a new series tonight. And our new series is called This Is Us. And the aspirational aim inside of it is when, when we try to tell the story of who we are, this is, this is the core pieces that make up that story. We want to go through each week, each of our values, each of the pieces that make us who we are. And we want to repledge our allegiance, not just to the expression and the recitation of these values, but to the embodiment for the purpose of being something good in a world that is so thirsty for goodness right now. Um, tonight, we're starting at the top by naming the thing that's at the bottom. On top of anything that might be said about the table, on top of anything that might be said about our community and the story that we are to tell, the first thing is that we are people who are Christ-centered, which in the story of us is, it's really less of a value as it is a vision. It is the, um, it's like the womb from which our values are actually born. Our values are answers to the question of what, of what matters most to Christ, what is revealed in the life of Christ. These aren't just pet passions of ours or things that we get juiced about. This is when we survey the life of Christ, when we see what's being revealed, what are the pieces that we want to participate in, in fidelity to good news in this world right now. We are people who are Christ-centered. And I'm, I'm a person who doesn't really know how to talk about that fully because you know, it's one thing to talk about one thing, but it's an entirely different thing to talk about everything. And make no mistake about it that when we set out to talk about the Christ, that's exactly what we're setting out to do. We're trying to name the thing that is beneath all things, the holy hum that rests at the center of all of our stories. And so my aim here tonight in the brief glimpse that we have together is that 
perhaps um, we can whet your appetites into expansion and to thinking about new things and new ways and to unsettle some old things to make space for, for Christ to come in and reveal some things. But at the heart of it, I think what I want people to, to walk away with, and I want to say this now because I don't want it to get lost along the way and I feel like the heat, it's, the heat's threatening, the lightheadedness, it might get lost along the way. Being Christ-centered is not a statement of religious identity, but rather it's a proclamation over all of reality. And I want to name what I mean in the moments to come. And let me go back when I first started learning this um, to the days of yore. The year was 2015, I believe, and I was in Pasadena, California, and I was grabbing a burger after the class with one of my professors. My professor was like an expert in Pauline studies. He was obsessed with the life of Paul, wrote books on the life of Paul, and so I figured like I would, I'd meet him in his joy, and I'd ask him a Pauline question. I asked him, I said, here's my question, Doc, is when I look at all of Paul's letters and I think about everything that he went on to talk about. Why is it that the person of Jesus comes up so rarely? Why doesn't Paul ever talk about um, Jesus in his letters? And he went on to say, well, because Paul spoke about the Christ, to which I kind of cocked my head with that apple wheel of death face on. And I said, let me clarify once again. Why doesn't Paul talk really all that much about the life of Jesus H. Christ? Why is it that outside of the Gospels, we never hear about how Jesus filled boats with trout, how he cured blindness with a loogie in the dirt? Why don't we hear Paul ever pontificating about the virgin birth or how he defied the laws of buoyancy and walked on water? How is it that moment when, when Jesus takes a little boy's lunch and turns it into a feast for the thousands, how does that not make it into one of the letters for Paul? All of the sweat, all of the blood, all of the struggle and the crowds and hurt and healing that we see packed into that 33-year life, why does all of that end up just being B-roll that never makes it inside of Paul's featured films? And my professor across the table, smiling at me now, kind of smiling in that like you, you, you sweet little idiot kind of way, he said, because the first followers of Jesus, they were focused on the Christ. When the first followers of Jesus sat down to write about this Jewish rabbi named Jesus, in roughly the generation that followed Jesus, they talked about how in this one particular human life, we find the universal realities of the heart of God. They talked about how they discovered the way that the Spirit has always moved in the way that we just saw Jesus move. That Jesus was, yes, he was a son, but Jesus was also a sign. Jesus was a sign that was pointing to something that is the truthiest part of all. My professor told me on that fateful day in 2015 that they didn't talk about the rabbi who had a, a dove descend upon him, nor the rabbi who was pinned up by the Romans, because they talked about the Christ. For the first followers of Jesus, Jesus wasn't just a rabbi. Jesus was the revelation. And then my professor cracked open his little pocket Bible, and he said, if I may, let me just read to you a little bit from Hebrews 1, the opening words. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets at many different times and in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom God appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What does that mean? Well, the writer, she goes out of her way to say that all along since the beginning of time, we've heard these whispers. We've heard the echoes of something good, of something true, of something benevolent, of something of love that rests at the center of the light. But now, inside of the life of the sun, we finally get to hear the song. Jesus is what God is like. Jesus is what God has always been like. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. There have been plenty of times where we didn't really know what God was like. And we made up a lot of guesses and we did a lot of harmful things in light of those speculations. But the writer here says that that time for ambiguity has now come to a close because the sun has arrived and clarity came with him. In the life of Jesus, we see what God has been up to the whole time and it's good. So to think about, let's connect the dot between the writer of Hebrews, what they are saying there, what Paul is saying in 1 Colossians, or Colossians 1, in, in Ephesians, in the letter of Philippians, 1 Corinthians, in all of these other spaces. Essentially what they're trying to get at is when you see Jesus in those moments speaking to the woman at the well, you aren't just seeing Jesus speak to a woman at a well. We are seeing how spirit has always moved past the boundary lines, be they religiously ordained or politically set up. Jesus is revealing that the Spirit has always made this reach, always been on the move for redemption purposes. When we see Jesus telling the insurgent on the cross next to him that even right now, in the midst of all your pain, I will be with you until we arrive at paradise, we are seeing Emmanuel, the one who is with us in all of our pain, the one who has always been with us in all of our pain. When we hear Jesus saying to us from that fateful Sermon on the Mount that we need to turn our other cheeks when somebody slaps us and we need to try our hardest to love those who are hardest to love, Jesus isn't giving you like some tips on how to be a part of his brand. Jesus is inviting us to sing our part in the universal song, to join the Christ in what Paul would later says, uh, Christ came to, to destroy the dividing walls of hostility for the purpose of bringing all things to a place of unity. In Jesus, we see who God has always been and how God has always been creating and sustaining and reconciling, putting all of the broken pieces back together again for the purpose of bringing unity to everybody everywhere. I know this is abstract, and I hate being abstract, and I think you guys know me enough to know that, but I think this is foundational. And I, I, my hope is that you get a glimpse so you'll lead you to look further into it. Because what we are talking about was what the first Christians talked about when they set out to speak about Jesus, and they said that in this particular person, we encounter the universal pattern. This is why John begins his gospel the way that John began his gospel. He claims that Jesus is the word, and through the word all things were made. Colossians, it says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things are created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In him all things have been sustained. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Ephesians, Paul says the same thing, but he goes on to say, the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things came and through who we live. Do you, are you starting to get a glimpse at the implications? Because for much of our, our community, I'll speak for myself. I won't put this on you. Heaven forbid I continue to project in my career as a pastor. But for many of us, myself, I almost did it again there. We were told the story of Jesus. Um, Jesus was a solution, a response to a problem and a threat. 
Jesus was the Hail Mary pass late in the game. At some point, uh, the story has gone that human beings made a mess of things, and God started to panic up above. God said, what are we going to do about it? God looked around and said, I got a son. He doesn't have a job. He's up here playing video games. I'll send him in. He'll tell them how messed up they became, and he will set things to right. That's how the story has gone. So Jesus came down. Jesus was killed. And through his blood and through that death, redemption now is ours. A lot of problematic pieces that for the sake of time tonight, I'll spare you. First and foremost being, though, that death and killing can ever lead to something good. That's not true. But that story, the framed up, it gives you a reason to believe that it is so. And it completely, though, most problematically, and why it's so disruptive to the foundation of who Jesus actually was, is it dismisses everything that the first church, the first Christian, said that Jesus actually was. The person, in this particular person, we see the universal pattern, and we hear the invitation to live our lives in accordance with the pattern that's being revealed. This is when, why the great Jesuit priest and scientist, Deschardins, he once was called to Rome after giving a series of lectures, and they wanted to clarify some issues they had with some of his teachings. And essentially, they got past like the being politically correct, and they just asked him, they said, what is it that you're trying to do? In all these teachings about Christ and the, in the cosmic Christ and how in Jesus we discovered the Christ and the heart of God is on full display, what is it that you are actually trying to get after? In Deschardins, he said, I am trying to write a Christology that is wide enough to incorporate Christ. Christ isn't just an anthropological phenomenon with significance for humanity, but Christ is also a cosmic event with significance for the planet. And that's exactly what the Bible says about Jesus. Christ is more than just a historical person who walked this earth for 33 years, though he is also that. He is more than a great teacher, mystical miracle worker, an extraordinary moral exemplar, though that he is too. Christ is even more than the God-man who died for our sins and rose from the dead, though that is simply a part that is crucial of his identity. Christ, the scriptures tell us, is both someone and something within the very structure of the cosmos itself, the pattern on which the universe was conceived is built and continues to develop. And again, I just would ask you to consider the implications. Christ lies not just at the root of spirituality and morality, but at the base of all physics, biology, chemistry, and cosmology as well. Christ rests at the bottom beneath the spiritual and the material, the moral and the physical, the mystical and the hormonal, the religious and the pagan, these things that we have perceived to be opposing angry strangers, Christ reveals once and for all that they are family members, sourced by the same stuff, from the same spirit, from the same place, headed in the same direction. To put it as simply as I can, I would say that the same force that is responsible for writing the laws of gravity was also behind the Sermon on the Mount. And so here we are talking about this new series, This Is Us, and we're identifying ourselves as a Christ-centered people. And for me, for us, that means to be a people who believe that all of reality is made and shaped according to one same pattern that looks like Jesus. Nothing is outside of that. Everything is inside of that. Everything is moving in that direction. Be it the universe hurling through space, the blind attractions of atoms for each other, the relentless push for growth in a plant, 
the instinctual hunt for blood by a mosquito, the automatic impulse of a baby to eat everything, the fierce protectiveness of a young mom, the obsession to create that's inside of an artist, the reverence that rests in the prayers of a saint. All of it, ultimately, is part of one and the same thing, the unfolding of creation as made in the image of Christ that reveals the invisible God. This is why we call Jesus the light of the world. Jesus is the light in the same way that light works today. When you go home tonight and you step into your house and you flip that switch and turn the lights on, that light doesn't create anything new. That light reveals what has been here the whole time. And I think this is why we love these stories so much. Is because it, it explains for us why they resonate so deeply with us. These stories of grace and love and pushing back on injustice Stories of Jesus and his unconditional acceptance. Jesus' insistence that you are already at the party, that God is with you, God is for you, God moves by your side. They speak to something in us about what it means to be a human, what it looks like to participating in the construction of a better creation. Jesus keeps insisting that the good news is really about the least and the lost and the disadvantaged and the ones that the people are keep pushing to the sides. And there's something inside of us that goes, absolutely, I knew it. I felt that to be true. Jesus comes to say that wasn't just an echo, that wasn't just a whisper. This is the song that rests at the center of the universe, and I'm telling you that it is true. There's a deeper resonance there. It isn't just a nice sentiment to coddle emotions that we may have. It is the insistence of the first Jesus writers saying that when we look at this particular person, we discover for ourselves the universal pattern. The life of Jesus reveals the heart of God. It reveals how things actually are. And so when you're feeling generous, if you're feeling kind, and, and you're doing the things that are in line with Jesus, and you realize, like, I feel more human right now, feel more connected right now, feel like I am participating in something that is truthier than my fantasy football team at home, it's because it is. There is something to this. That is the universal invitation that is always being extended our way, always pushing us into deeper community, deeper connection, deeper unity of all things, always empowering us to destroy the dividing walls of hostility, which is exactly what the Christ came to do. And so the insistence, again, of the first Christians is that you can do whatever you want. You can live a certain way. You don't have to do destroy any of these walls of division. You can play into that game and say that there is an us versus them, a clean and unclean. They're over there, we're over here. You can do all that, but you're going up against the tide. You're swimming upstream, and Jesus is inviting you to ride the wave. And so that's what we do. You know, when we say that, you know, to be Christ-centered is not a statement of religious identity, but it's an assessment of what is actually reality, that's what we mean. And in our ability as a community to try to learn how to swim, in our ability to learn how to ride the wave, the values that we're going to go through each of these next few weeks, those are how we learn how to swim together. When we talk about what does it look like for our individual lives, our particular embodied lives to participate in the life of the divine as it's revealed in the life of Jesus, it talks about things like committed to justice, being radically inclusive, being tangibly compassionate, being a people who desires to be with persons. All these things are means not just that we, th we think this might be a good idea to help people out next time. Nah, 
When we look at the life of Jesus, this is the invitation that has always been extended our way. And we take these values, not just as ideas to express, but actually practices to embody. We see that, okay, there's the good news that we've been waiting for. And it's the song that's been sung since the very start. In Jesus, we, we obviously don't see every characteristic of God. You know, Paul says we see through a glass dimly. We don't see God's omnipotence. We don't see the all-knowing God in the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus at one point was asked, Jesus, when you come back? And he said, uh, I don't know. We don't see that. We don't see all of the characteristics of God, but we do get a clear glimpse at the character of God. And this is why the first Christians were insistent about the Christ. Do not miss the life of Jesus because it speaks an invitation into the lives of us all. Last night I was with a friend. Last night I was with a friend who was going through some heaviness, some hardships, some addiction, some confusion. And that's just the start. And in my conversation with him late at night at a beach, he asked, do you think, do you think there are good reasons to believe that the best is still to come? And I told him about the Christ. I said, I do believe that there is a holy hum that still sings from the center of the universe that is still actively working to sustain, create, and reconcile. And that's enough to get me out of bed tomorrow to see that it is so. To participate in this song and to sing my part. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are good. God, in, in you, we taste what Paul calls the first fruits of a new creation. We get that taste of what still is possible, that even in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of job loss, in the midst of divorce, addictions, fractured relationships, in the midst of the dividing walls of hostility still standing in far too many places, we see something in you that asks more from the things in us. Give us the courage, God, to participate in your story that's revealed in your son. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Um, I was thinking while Matt was talking that so often people ask me about the reality of Jesus. And I often think of it and try to explain it like, Jesus is the glimpse of God that we get that we can actually kind of get our heads around. And then it's in Jesus that we can experience the heart of God. It's in Jesus, fully human and fully divine. It's in that Jesus that we're invited. We're invited to the party. We're invited to the table. And every week when we share in communion, a chance for us. It's a chance for us to experience the heart of God, to experience the love of God. Part of that beauty is that we get to do that together. On the night before Jesus died, he took bread. He broke that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the wine and he poured it into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. And when you drink from this cup, remember me.
that's exactly what we do. I invite you guys, you can take your own little cup and you peel back that top and you take that wafer and you hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you. And when you drink from the cup, hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. And we take that bread and we take that cup We're at the party. We are part of God's family already. Please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we um, close, quick reminder, parents, if you want to be a part of the parent meeting, you do, and you want to shape like what we are doing as a community around our kids, how do we care for them and equip them to live lives of love like we all want our kids to live, go inside immediately after gathering into the room to your slight right. It's kind of a straight shot, but there's a slight right. There's chairs set up. We would love to have you part of that conversation. Now hear the words of Christ for you in this moment right now. Will you close your eyes and hold out your hands? Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. Go in peace. You are loved. We'll see you next week. <laughs>